I well remember when I first came to Oxford a number of years ago now to begin pastoring uh, Maudlin Road Church a man from the world of business um, took me out to lunch and he told me how to, to lead the church forward he, he said first of all you must clarify in your mind where you want the church to be in five years time then you must work out how to get there in small manageable steps and then you must set about that task one step at a time. And part of me was very excited by that uh, clear and simple vision. Here was a church growth plan in one simple paragraph. But part of me was also terrified by it. I wasn't quite sure, frankly, where we should be in five years' uh, time as a church. I could see certain things that needed to change. I had perhaps dreams beyond that, but uh, um, were they just dreams? And uh, was I capable, anyway, of implementing this grand plan? What if I failed? And a worse thought came into my mind. What if I succeeded? What if uh, um, I managed, in fact, by the skill of my leadership and, uh, and management? I see perhaps a few people chuckling there quietly. What if I managed to do, that, to do this? Would I be a disciple of Christ or would I actually be much more the monster described by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche a hundred years ago as the superman who just bends other people's will to his? As I walked away from my uh, lunchtime meeting with my church growth advisor, I wondered what actually I could learn from the Bible about business plans and implementation strategies and vision realisation and all those other things you hear. And my mind actually soon turned to Acts chapter 16. See, if ever there was someone in history who was successful in implementing a big vision for his life and for the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul. Within his lifetime, the Christian gospel had been established throughout his known world. And Paul was absolutely crucial in that process. How did he do it? Did he have a, a grand plan that he carefully implemented uh, step by step? Or was it, as my more spiritual friends uh, were inclined to say, simply the work of God, which neither Paul nor anyone else had any control over? Was uh, uh, the Apostle Paul the, the, the superman par excellence? Or was he actually no more influential than uh, a dandelion seed blowing in the wind of the Holy Spirit. How did Paul go about spreading the good news? Well, Acts chapter, chapter 16 <coughs> gives us a snapshot of his ongoing week in, week out ministry. And the, the first thing that it tells us which we'll be especially alert to if we have been following this series, is how incredibly flexible Paul was. Paul, we learn, circumcises Timothy, actually only days after insisting circumcision must not be required by Christians. He came to Derby, verse 1, and to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, 
whose mother was a Jewish and a, and a believer, but whose father was a Greek, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Quite why was Paul prepared to be so radically flexible? After all, he has just argued uh, up in Jerusalem that the Gentile churches must not circumcise their believers. And now he's going back to those same Gentile churches and decides to circumcise young Timothy as he heads off uh, in that direction. You'll have to work out the answer to that in your home groups at home. We haven't got time for it, I'm sorry, but it is important. We're going to look at some other aspects. What is your appetite to join a home group? I hope, uh, I hope you will seriously think about uh, doing that and, uh, and thinking it through. I want to look this morning at some other aspects of Paul's um, policy, Paul's habits as he travelled around spreading the gospel. He was massively flexible for reasons that you can explore yourselves. He was also guided. That's very, very uh, obvious from uh, verses 6 to 10 of, uh, uh, of Acts chapter 16. It uh, uh, follows his journey at breakneck speed, travelling through Phrygia and Galatia. The Holy Spirit stops him entering the province of Asia. He comes to Mycenae where he could turn north and go to Bethania, but the Spirit of Jesus stops him there. So he passes by that. He goes down to the, the, uh, uh, the port of, of, uh, of Troas, um, and there he has a vision of this man from Macedonia, from Greece, um, across the sea in in Europe and uh, uh, he, he concludes they must go there. Here is a man who was guided at every turn, isn't there? Is every one of those um, <coughs> bits of guidance though um, the same as the last bit of guidance where Paul receives a vision, a dream? Some people suggest it is but I, I don't think we should assume that. Just back in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, uh, a complicated, tense set of discussions and negotiations which resulted in, uh, in a compromise, as we saw last week, is summarised as it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They saw that the Holy Spirit guided them even in the midst of, the, of, of complex decisions, of councils. As, elsewhere uh, in the New Testament, we find uh, Paul's decisions uh, were based on a deep knowledge of Scripture, first of all, which shaped his plans at every, act, uh, 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 at every turn. They were based on a deep understanding of himself and of his place in God's plan. They were based on a deep understanding of God's world, in fact, so that he understood the signs of the times and what was going on and could respond to specific circumstances as he went along. And there is no reason to doubt that all of those things come under the heading of God's Holy Spirit-directed guidance. After all, it was Jesus who promised the Spirit would lead the disciples into all truth. 
would help them to understand the truths of the scriptures. That's how God guides his people as well as, and that's very important, by occasional surprise revelations. And we just don't know what combination of uh, factors were uh, involved as the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching in Asia or the Spirit of Jesus kept them from entering Bithynia or um, was it some practical circumstance? Was, was, it, uh, um, was the Spirit of Jesus actually reminding them of the words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven that they would be uh, um, his witnesses to the ends of the earth Bithynia is, to be honest, a backwater. Maybe they, uh, they decided, as they meditated deeply on Jesus' words, that there were other uh, parts of the world still unevangelized that were far more important to go to than uh, that uh, northern backwater. We just don't know. What we do know is that uh, it was a dream, this man from Macedonia in uh, Greece, which uh, finally led them to Europe. And interestingly, despite the vividness, actually, even of this dream, and the fact that it's come to the Apostle Paul himself, he seems to take the contents of that dream and submit it to his band of disciples. Luke tells us there, we concluded that God had called us to Macedonia. We concluded it. Visions and feelings and in intuitions in Paul's world um, and in ours should be valuable. But they're not a trump card. They don't automatically um, um, uh, re-divert us. They must be evaluated by those who have the mind of Christ. I want you to notice, though, as this, as this intensely guided activity goes on. How, in fact, it was always in the context of activity, of endeavour, of entrepreneurial efforts, even. He didn't sit around the Apostle Paul and uh, wait for a, for a bolt from the blue. Clearly here, he's trying everything, everywhere. Don't expect to be guided in your life if you are totally passive as a disciple of Christ. Frankly, guidance is like uh, uh, riding a bike. It's only possible if you're moving forward. But how frustrating it must have been. Yeah. In the province of Asia, for, for instance, that they uh, try to enter, there was the great city, strategic city of Ephesus. But Paul couldn't go there. Most of Paul's guidance here is God slamming doors in his face. From time to time I see, I see a lot of frustration in Christians. I don't know whether you've felt it yourself. 
especially Christians who actually really do seriously want to be radical followers of Jesus Christ. They get demoralised. Let me ask you, did your reading of the Bible make you think it was going to be straightforward? Did you think that God was just going to move all obstacles out of your way like those, uh, like those sliding doors that, uh, that open just when you think you're about to get a bloody nose? Did you think, actually, that God is actually inactive? Perhaps even unable to help you? Because again and again you find yourself stepping forward and the door doesn't move. See, I tell you, God is not inactive in the lives of those who really want to serve him. Yes, the devil does make every effort to have his way and have his say and sometimes we see his uh, work, in a, his malevolence in a very real way in our lives. But God is Lord even over the devil. His spirit is in control of our lives if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Spirit of Jesus sometimes stops us. The Holy Spirit sometimes prevents us. That is the way God works in Christians' lives. Perhaps we've got lessons to learn. Perhaps we've got different avenues we need to pursue. We should not give up serving God. Do you conclude that that a red traffic light is is, uh, a reason to actually get out of the car and sit on the pavement in frustration? Perhaps actually that traffic light has saved you from a bigger disaster. It may have slowed us down and stopped us for a moment. But there is wisdom in it. I have to say, my Christian life, you see, has been one of slow progress, sometimes significant redirections, and I have to say frequent frustrations. Is that because I'm a bad Christian? Might be a bit of it is. Sometimes there are sins that I have had to see in my life. But it's not always, you know. I've grown increasingly weary of slick salesmen and clever CEOs who tell us that all we need to do to plan our life is just uh, get some vision of where we need to be and set out the easy steps for how to get there. If you think your life is going to be like that, you're going to get a few bloody noses as doors do not open. while God teaches you. But I have to say I've become increasingly excited as I've looked at the Bible 
and I've looked at the life of people like the Apostle Paul and I have seen what I have experienced. Pain, frustration, redirection, periods of inactivity, periods of feeling perhaps completely restrained and frustrated. But long-term real fruitfulness. Paul was guided. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus' control over his life. And it seems more often than not that guidance was a stop sign. But Paul was also strategic in the way that he used his life. That's that's very, very obvious as you study his life and some elements of his particular strategies are very, very obvious in this chapter, chapter 16 of, uh, of Acts. Paul was a man, for a start, devoted to strategic discipling of people. We've already seen that he takes uh, this young man Timothy along with him on his uh, missionary journey. He doesn't know Timothy particularly well. So he asks, we see in verse um, 2, the brothers at Lystra. And they give a good report of him. And that's good enough for him. He takes him along. He already has uh, Silas as his principal companion and by the end of the the, uh, passage that we we read he's picked up, um, it seems, Luke, the author of this book because we see in Troas that the story um, begins to be spoken in the first person. We got ready to go to Macedonia, says Luke. Paul always travelled with a band of disciples because he knew First of all, that he needed the support of friends. It didn't work for him to be a lone ranger. He also needed to train up a new generation of younger leaders and he did it by sharing his life and ministry with them. Timothy was, uh, at this stage was almost certainly extremely young. Sixteen years or so later in the... Um, and that is we call 1 and 2 Timothy, which Paul wrote to this young man, Timothy. He's actually still called young. And uh, frankly, in an era where the life expectancy was of the order of 50, it was difficult to be seen as young, much past the age of 30. Timothy was quite possibly then a teenager even, at the stage that he joined up with Paul. And uh, Paul, on the other hand, was um, roughly the age I am now. And some of you still think I'm a mere mere whippersnapper. Others probably think I'm utterly past it. Perhaps I'm actually somewhere between between the two. But I have to say, at my age, you feel the need of support of others. You feel your limitations. You feel your weaknesses. 
It's a, it's a, it's a great delight in, in, in the church here that we function more and more as, as, a, as, a, as a diverse team. But at my age as well, you become acutely aware that the crest of the hill has probably been reached. And uh, if the gospel is going to continue in another generation, significant part of the, the investment that I need to make over the next 25 years will be raising up that next generation. Now, we've been greatly blessed, haven't we, by, the, by, by our investment as a church in, in a pastoral assistant. But actually I'm convinced that for the sake of the gospel, that pattern must develop still further. As leaders, we're trying to see how we can have trainees or, or, or apprentices in the church. And to a certain extent, the church benefits from the energy of uh, those younger people. But uh, more than that, more significantly than that, God's church universally, the spread of the gospel is benefited from young people having a chance to feel and see what it's like to be engaged in gospel ministry as Timothy did. Perhaps you're, you're a young person and like, like that you're, yourself. You, you feel that you need a Timothy experience. We'll talk to some, someone about it. You don't have to do it as a full-time uh, a worker in any way. It can start now. Perhaps you're a slightly older person and let me say, in this church, about the age of 32 you start to become a slightly an older person. Perhaps you need to start thinking about investing in the lives of others. Paul was involved in strategic discipleship for a specific purpose to enable others to spread the gospel. Paul as well often went to strategic locations. Paul uh, receives this vision of the man from Macedonia but uh, nobody's told him specifically where to go in Macedonia. It's a big place. And the first place he gets to, of course, is the port, verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea, sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. Neapolis was a large, substantial town. Surely a good place for him to stop. He doesn't. He moves on through, verse 12. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there seven days. Uh, several days. Luke is quietly explaining to us why Paul went straight to Philippi. It was the leading city of Macedonia. It was the centre of administration. It was uh, even a Roman colony which gave it lots of social and administrative links right to the heart of the Roman Empire. Neapolis could wait. Philippi needed a church. Paul's policy always was to go, if he could, to strategic locations and to plant churches there and let them let the gospel spread out along the normal lines of communication that there were with strategic cities. 
That's actually why being in Oxford, you know, is such a privilege for us. We lose sight of the extraordinary privilege we we have. Uh, Oxford is a small city with global connections. In this country you will find, I think, more people who have lived for a while in Oxford than almost any other city for a whole range of reasons. And you have a small city anyway. In the world as well, it's probably the best known city in the world that is only about 100,000 people strong. Go anywhere in the world and mention the name of Oxford. And at the very least you'll find them saying, as I found in the hills of Nepal, ah, the boat race. (laughs) It's just a constant throughput of people to this city. And for us who stay long term in in the church, that can be hard. For instance, about 50% of us here have joined the church in the last three years. And I fully expect in the next three years to find the same statistic. That's what Oxford is like. But it is a massive privilege. I am convinced that we must capitalise on that more and more. This is a strategic location, you know. Enormous privilege to be involved in discipling people who will spread out throughout this country, throughout this world. And uh, Paul, as well as going to strategic locations, went to strategic people groups. His strategic people in every city uh, initially were the Jews and the worshippers of the God of, uh, of, of the Jews, the, the so-called God-fearers. He always went first to the synagogue. In the absence of a synagogue in that city, he would find the Jewish place of prayer. And he just does, does just that in Philippi. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia was already a woman interested in worshipping the true God. Reaching her was relatively easy. And she, in her turn, could be a bridgehead into that community. Who are the strategic people, the strategic people groups in this area? Let's let's remember, we have a duty to share the gospel with all people without distinction, and we'll see more of that in a minute. But we do have no particular mandate to spend inordinate amounts of time on people who are just not interested. It's part of our respect of them, though with deep sadness we say to them, if they're they're not interested, we will not shove it down their throats. But who are the groups of people who may be interested? Let me make a a few suggestions for us, locally. 
Our part of East Oxford is incredibly young, you know. The median age of the area around the church building itself is uh, 29. It only rises to 33 in, in the Ickley Fields area. Young adulthood is actually a primary time of life when we reevaluate our beliefs. That, that is a strategic opportunity that the Lord has given us to invest in young adults. We uh, make every effort, especially in our, in our, our evening gathering and in, and in uh, uh, the doorway initiative, to make it particularly attractive and open for the sort of style that young adults like. That is no accident. We're trying to imitate the Apostle Paul who went particularly to people who might be interested in responding. Or uh, let, me, let me suggest another um, strategic opportunity that we have. East Oxford is pretty multicultural and in particular um, over the next decade or two international students are likely to increase. The university has a, has a plan to double the number of graduates, uh, graduate students in the university and all of those will be international students. What an opportunity. Again, a time away from home, away from, a, from, from our own culture, is often a time when we can sit down and reevaluate our lives and many people in that situation do become Christians. They are free to respond to Christ. More significantly, they then go back to their own country and conserve uh, Christ there. We do far too little amongst, uh, uh, amongst internationals in general, I think. Great opportunity for us over the next ten years or so. Or what about asylum seekers? You know, asylum seekers are a really mixed group who are sometimes incredibly open to, to the Gospel. Their work that Peter and Lisa Vernon are involved in is, is, is absolutely strategic. Most of them will return to their own countries. What if they took the Gospel back with them? Um, there are all sorts of people who are, who are asylum seekers and all need the gospel. Amongst them though, interestingly, if you look around at world leaders over the last 20 years, you will find a significant number of them who spent a while either as international students or as asylum seekers in this country. You know, uh, one of the greatest uh, moral leaders of the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi, was in Oxford a hundred years ago or so. And uh, when he came to Oxford, he was absolutely fascinated by Jesus. He began to attend a church. He found it cold and unwelcoming. He found the uh, people were, frankly, a bit racist and aloof and he left he had a lifelong fascination for Jesus but he wouldn't call himself a Christian because of the people he met in Oxford 
The Apostle Paul then was thinking strategically. He was thinking carefully about how to invest his life. What about you? I don't mean uh, just, you see, whether you might be a gospel, full-time gospel worker or not. I mean, how are you spending your whole life? I hope you attend Maudlin Road, partly at least because you see what an exciting opportunity it is. I hope uh, uh, your work is to uh, glorify God in the broadest sense of the word. But certainly not to abandon any thought of your whole life being invested carefully for the glory of Christ. One more thing though. that I would have to point out to my lunchtime church growth advisor. Lydia wasn't the only person who became a Christian in Philippi. Yes, Paul thought strategically. But actually, life sometimes stopped his strategies. In, his, uh, in the case of Philippi, there was uh, enormous opposition stirred up against him and he got thrown into prison. Did he then give up? Did he, did he then uh, um, um, sit down in utter frustration that his wonderful plans were now in ruins? No, he didn't. We find him at midnight praying, singing hymns to God still worshipping the living God. And the fruit of that was that an insignificant jailer was converted. He thought strategically, but he wasn't dominated by strategy. He was dominated by a passionate love for Christ, by a deep confidence in God by a willingness to be redirected and controlled by the Holy Spirit and a deep desire to share the gospel with everyone who came along. It's fascinating that Luke gives more attention to this nobody, the jailer than he does to sophisticated Lydia. She was massively used. We find her elsewhere in the New Testament being massively used by God for the Gospel. But Luke loved everyone. Perhaps especially the poor. And he loved the way that an ordinary man who met Paul find Jesus. Is that your life? Is that our life?
we need to pry that it is.